Well, you know the story, right? Once upon a time, boy meets girl, girl meets boy, sparks, stars, heart emojis, lots of couple selfies, right? A proposal, some bling, a dreamy wedding day, an exchange of vows and rings, a romantic honeymoon, and then on to happily ever after, right? And uh, soon after that, reality likes to step in and make a little visit. Pretty soon, stress increases, and then communication starts to decrease. And then uh, sometimes the distance between you will increase, and intimacy will start to decrease. And at some point in time, the joys that come with a wedding ring are replaced by some of the combat and pain of a boxing ring. And then enters the haunting, long-standing statistic that about half of, divorce, uh, half of marriages fail. And that's just a, a tragic statistic that's still fairly accurate. I know for me, that's what I experienced in my family. Both my parents are on their third marriage. And so I understand what it's like to navigate through fractured family dynamics and taking your kids and their grandkids through fractured family dynamics. And so we know that uh, the fallout of a broken marriage is tragic. In fact, how many of you, just by raising your hands, how many of you have had divorce touch your life? You, your parents, kids, siblings, relatives, friends? Yeah, a lot of us in here. How about the other side? By showing up your hands, how many of you have seen healthy, flourishing marriages modeled for you? Or maybe you're experiencing one yourself. Absolutely. And a lot of times when we come into marriage, we don't know exactly what we're going to get. We have this hope, we have this dream, we have this idea, but then sometimes it doesn't play out the way we picture it in our head. Now, statistically, many of you are married or you will be married. Also, statistically, if you don't do something different than half the marriages out there, you're not going to stay married. So what's your vision for marriage? What's your target? Will you be the couple that mostly fights with your spouse? Or will you be one of the couples that has learned how to fight for your spouse? How do you avoid becoming just roommates with wedding rings? See, your marriage can survive. And on top of that, it can actually thrive. And the biggest factor in a thriving marriage is to pursue marriage as it was intended and designed by our creator. See, God created love and marriage. And he gave us instructions for how we're supposed to engage it in his word, the Bible. And the problem isn't uh, that couples aren't necessarily aware of it, but many of us don't even uh, implement it or we don't put it in place, or we don't pay attention to it. And so most couples don't have a vision for marriage that's truly centered on the Lord. So today we're kicking off a four-week series on marriage, and we just want to dive in a little bit. And this isn't going to be, in the heart of the series, is not going to be like three you know, tips to make your communication warm and fuzzy. You know, that's not the goal. We want to get a little more gritty, because marriages out there are being slaughtered. And there's a lot of struggling marriages on the, on the verge of um, destruction, or they're just committed to one another, but they're not committed to each other as spouses. And so the marriage just kind of limps along. That's not God's design. And so we want to spend the next four weeks talking a little bit more about uh, some four principles of marriage that can help us have marriages that thrive. And today, we're going to start by looking at the very first marriage in human history. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to begin reading at 15, but we're not there yet. Now, as you turn to this passage, I just want to have a quick word for those of you who are watching online or are here who are single or separated or divorced, or maybe you've had a spouse pass away. 
Now, although this series is directed mostly at those who are married or plan on getting married, we still want to be sensitive to the stage of relationships that you are in right now. And what I want to offer you today is this, and not just for today, but the series, that there's going to be still valuable information for you. So whether your marriage is struggling, there might be valuable information to help get your marriage restored. Or maybe um, if, if, if you're in any of those other categories, there's valuable information that you can apply in your life still. And if you're single, you can take what you learn in the next several weeks and let them be fuel for prayer to a couple that you deeply love. And so maybe it's your parents or some friends or someone at your workplace or a neighbor or someone. What you learn and hear over the next several weeks may not apply to you immediately, maybe in the future, but it can apply to someone that you love dearly. So use it for prayer or advice as God opens the door to do both. So with that, let's look at the first marriage in human history and gain some insights on how our marriages can thrive. Uh, As you open up to Genesis 2, Before we start at verse 15, you've got to understand what took place up to this point. And so what we've seen up to this point summarized is that God has supernaturally created everything in existence. And his favorite and most personal creation was humanity. God took dirt of the earth, right? And he formed man and then breathed the breath of life into him and made him in his likeness, an intelligent, emotional, and spiritual being with the capacity to love and to detest and to create, and to destroy, and to laugh, and to weep, and to reason, and to choose, and to govern, and to live on eternally. We're going to live forever. The question is which destination we're going to, but we're going to live forever. And so we are God's masterpiece. So when God created the first person, that masterpiece was there. What did he do with them? Let's look at uh, Genesis 2, chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man, And put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Let's just pause here. The first man is living in a perfect, amazing environment, Eden. I want you to think about one of the most lush and beautiful places you've ever been to or would like to go to. Many years ago, my wife and I got a chance to go to the island of Kauai. And hands down, one of the most beautiful places uh, we've ever been to. It's hard to imagine that Eden was probably even more beautiful than Kauai was, or whatever place comes to your mind. So Eden was a true paradise, an oasis, lush and beautiful beyond description. It was a symbol of heaven on earth. And Adam had a purpose towards the earth. He had a rule to obey. He had an authority to respect But what is a good and beautiful place if you can't share it with someone? And so we see what God does next in verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Let's just unpack that for a second. What we see here is God gives a... um, Complete condemnation. He gives an indictment on isolation. Being alone is not good. And it was just interesting because when you study the creation account, many of you know this, God goes through all these days of creation 
uh, declaring everything good. Water, good. Light, good. Land, good. Plants, trees, stars, sun, moon, good. Uh, fish, birds, animals, good. Man alone, not good. Isolation is bad. It's not good for men to be by themselves. And all the ladies are going, not joking, right? No joke. <laughs> And what we see God doing in this moment is absolutely ingenious. Because what he's doing is he's creating a longing in Adam for a companion, for a mate, for a helper, as the Bible says here. And the Hebrew word there in the original language, helper, is the word ezer. It means not one who is subservient or inferior, but one who is equal, yet distinctly different. This is the ideal complement. And so I want you to run through your mind what God is doing in this moment. And what he's doing is he's brought all these creatures to Adam to declare a name for them of some sort. And so just put yourself in those shoes. Here's Adam. He's going, okay, those two, I'm going to call those lions. There's a he lion, she lion. Uh, these two I'm going to call uh, zebra. There's a he's you know, zebra, she zebra. These two crazy looking things, I'm going to call them gorillas. Uh, that's a he gorilla, she gorilla. And those two, and, and those two, and those, wait a minute, where's mine? right? Where's mine? And what's happening is God's creating this longing in him. He was preparing Adam for Eve before he prepared Eve for Adam. And so he's creating this longing in his heart, and then God gifts him with the match. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so we see here that instead of forming an independent uh, creature out of dirt, he instead took a, a piece of Adam. He took a piece of Adam. And so that from the start, there would be this intimate connection unlike any other species. And then we see this beautiful thing play out. Then the father, the heavenly father, brings the first bride to the first groom and hands her off. And ever since creation, we see this played out. And this is beautiful what God has done here. And as Adam receives his bride, his mind is blown. And he is attracted in every sense of the word, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. You know Adam was like, man, God, that horse thing was cool, but this, this is amazing. And so Adam receives his bride. And then God gives his marriage model for humanity. One of the most important verses in the entire Bible related to marriage, verse 24 of chapter 2, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See, we didn't invent marriage. It wasn't like, you know, you know, thousands of years ago, millions of years ago, some, you know, caveman grunted, another caveman grunted and said, hey, let's come up with this idea. God created marriage. It's his idea. It's his design. And so when you look at Genesis 2.24, it debunks all the things we see the world put their stamp of approval on. It says, you know, a man should leave his mother and father be united to his wife, not girlfriend, not live in, et cetera, to his wife. Make a vow, make a covenant. It's a man and a woman, right? Like there's no way around what God has said. This is how God has defined and declared marriage to be. And so we don't tamper with it. We receive it as he gave it. And as we look at this moment, this isn't a fairy tale. Eden's not an imaginary place. Adam and Eve are real people. This is a real historical moment in our history as humans. And at this moment, what we see is a glimpse of what God wants for man and wife 
And what he wants is an Eden experience. God created marriage in a garden. And when we look at this, we see joy and intimacy and faithfulness. We see life-giving unity and oneness. We see no shame. We see no conflict. We see no stress. We see no insecurity. There's no wondering where food's going to be, you know, if it's going to get on the table or not. There were no arguments. There was no suspicion of your spouse flirting or cheating. There's no porn. There's no 50 shades of whatever. There's no abuse. There's no workaholic spouse. And there's no threat of divorce. The first marriage shared a special, intimate, and close relationship with each other. But here's the most critical observation we need to make about this Genesis Garden Eden account that they also shared an intimate and close relationship with God. God's presence was in the garden. That's what made Eden, Eden. That God's presence was welcomed and invited and felt and experienced. And we don't know what that looked like, but it was real. And so if I were just to illustrate that, it's simply this. Take this amazing apparatus called a triangle, right? And we've got the man, blue, the girl, pink, okay? And we've got God, Triangle, gold, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, the whole like God in one, three in one. Um, This was a picture of what was going on in Eden. Man and woman were close to each other. They were close to God. This is how God designed everything in marriage to be. Close to God, close to each other. And that's what God has planned for us. And so the most thriving marriages aren't based solely on intimacy and closeness between the man and wife. It also is based on the intimacy that the man and wife experienced with God. That's what made Eden Eden. That's what we see in the garden. So things were amazing, but it didn't last long, right? As you go into Genesis chapter 3, we see, we see a turn here. Now the first few verses are basically summarized this way. We see a showdown between the first couple and the devil. And the devil tempts them and tests them to disobey God, and they give in. And let's pick it up in Genesis 3, 6. And see how all this goes down and the outcome of it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. I ate it. Couldn't help myself, you know, just innocent victim here, just a bystander. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, me? It was the serpent that deceived me. Adam's not the only victim here. I'm a victim too, okay? And so she deflected and blamed the serpent. Do you see what just happened? In this moment, in this defining act of rebellion by our earliest ancestors known as the fall, humanity was changed forever. And all the beautiful, all the good that God had created now has some disruption. And with the fall of humanity came sin. And now we all limp with the sin and selfishness of our character and in our being. And so this sin affects and scars all relationships, including marriage. And we would probably say especially marriage. 
especially marriage. And so after the fall, the first couple instantly felt shame and confusion and insecurity. They felt exposed and vulnerable. And then they resorted to self-sufficiency. Instead of turning to God to say, help us, they said, we're going to fix the problem. We'll make these loincloths. We'll cover ourselves up, right? So they they default to self-sufficiency. And here is our critical observation yet again, that the presence of the Lord, which was previously familiar and welcomed, is now unwelcomed and unwanted. Look again at verse 8. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Let's just stop there. This, they didn't freak out. This wasn't abnormal. This wasn't aberration. This was something that happened on a regular basis somehow. They were familiar with God's presence in the garden. And then it says that the man and wife hid themselves from the presence of God. Is this not the most pathetic game of hide and seek you've ever heard of? Like, God's asking rhetorical questions. Where are you? Like, he knows where they're at. You know, did you eat the fruit? Of course he knows they did. But it's all of a sudden we see this hiding. And this exchange between God and the first man and woman says a lot. Well, well, I was afraid. They were never afraid of God before. They felt extremely vulnerable and exposed. I hid. Oh, the fruit thing? Yeah, the woman you gave me, that's on her. Adam took the first swing. Right? He, he instantly blamed Eve. And of course, she just followed suit. Well, it was a serpent, right? And from that moment on, we see what happens. See, God created marriage in a garden, but now it's turning into a relational boxing ring. Jabbing, punching, and blocking with fear and excuses and accusation. And the we that God designed is now becoming a you and me. And so to illustrate that, basically what happened is when God created this at the fall, man and woman fell from the presence of God. And when they distanced themselves from God, what was also a natural byproduct? They distanced themselves from who? Themselves. Because when God created them, they were close and intimate with the Lord. They were close to one another. This is how God made it. This is how God designed it. In the act of rebellion, they felt distant from God, hid from God. And then now there's a rift between them as well. This right here is a picture of probably most marriages. Not close to God, not close to each other. And so, you know, you can read books and you can get great marriage tips. No, all that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But we need to resolve this distance issue, not just between us, but back to us and God. And so since that day, men and women will naturally feel drawn to each other. They'll long to be together. But instead of fighting for each other, like Adam and Eve should have fought for each other in the garden, fought against temptation. But the outcome was they gave in and now they're fighting with each other. And so now we have opposites attract and then opposites attack. And we see that play out in marriages. And Adam and Eve passed those challenges on to us. Thank you very much, right? And so now our marriages struggle with the same dynamics of the fall. Now, it looks different than Eden, of course. But it's still the same dynamic of the fall that's getting played out. And so too many marriages start to look more like a boxing ring than a garden. And too many couples walk down the aisle with hopes and dreams of what married life will look like. And then they find themselves battling with the one that they've vowed their love to and their life to. And so we have this Eden in mind, but then we find ourselves slugging it out in a relational octagon. We've got pride and selfishness and constant conflict. We've got broken communication and deception. We've got blame and resentment and insecurity. We have hurtful words and hurtful actions. We've got lack of general intimacy, lack of sexual intimacy, no sense of team. 
And in the worst case, we have abuse, we have abandonment, and we have adultery, and then we have divorce. There's been a massive disruption in the oneness and intimacy with God and with each other, and now we're trying to resolve this still when we get married. So how do we break through? How do we get our marriages being more like the garden that God had in mind? Here's how. We have to fight with our spouse to get back to God's presence. We have to find a way to get back to this dynamic in our marriage. It won't be like the garden before the fall, but we can get closer to God than we are. We need to learn how to get close to God's presence as husband and wife. And when we say God, we're not talking about God in general, like oh, yeah, some force out there. We're talking about God specific. The one true God, the one who created all things, the one who gave us his word, the Bible, the God who came in person through his son, Jesus Christ, who, take on, who took on flesh and went to the cross for our sins and died the sacrificial death for our sins. The one who rose from the grave and conquered you know, sin and death on our behalf. This is the God that we need to pursue and chase because we're still hiding from God like Adam and Eve did. We're still avoiding his presence. We're still blaming we're still deflecting. We're still justifying. We're still trying to live as victims. We're still trying to cover up our shame with our own self-sufficient efforts because we don't have this, but that's what we were created for. On that note, any nagging feeling of dissatisfaction in our marriage is a reminder that two imperfect, sinful, self-centered, broken, wounded people Somehow we're hoping that some perfect soulmate would arrive in a blaze of glory and give us meaning and worth and fulfillment. And when we do that, we're asking a person to do something that's impossible. People are looking for a date or a mate or a romance or sex to give what only can be found in relationship with Christ. You have these deep, deep longings that something's not right. And somehow we deceive ourselves to think, if I can just get that man, if I can just get that woman, if I can just get that family in the frame that I saw at the store, if that happens, then I will be fulfilled and happy. The only person who can meet your deepest longings is the Lord. The only person who's going to make you feel fulfilled is the Lord. And so we put this unfair expectation on this person, and then when they let us down, it's on. And so we have to get back to understanding that it's all about seeking the Lord. These people come into our lives. God's given us amazing thing called marriage, this amazing thing called love. And then we journey together toward the presence of God. We journey together to glorify God with what he's given us. Marriage really isn't about this. It's really about this. This is what God's designed. And the world says, no, it's just about this. And they just want to leave the whole top off, right? And leave God out. And we see how that works. Just look at the world for an example, and we'll see how that works, right? Just look at celebrity marriages. You know how that works. And so we understand that our deepest longings are met by the Lord. A spouse makes a terrible substitute for God. Amen? Your spouse cannot meet your deepest longings, but they can journey with you to the one who can meet your deepest longings. That's what we have to get back to. And so if God is not present, we're in trouble. If God's presence isn't in our marriage, we're in trouble. Here's the types of things that typically happen when we have no regard for God. We break our marriage vows and we tap out. Or we harbor bitterness and resentment in our hearts toward our spouse, never letting them off the hook. 
or we let our sinful, self-centered nature wreak havoc in our marriage, or we become unfaithful to our spouse when the flesh or the world or the devil tempts us to flirt or to look at porn or to reach out to that old flame on social media or to emotionally divorce yourself and just live out your commitment with no joy. Or you never reach the potential intimacy that God has designed for your marriage. So here's the, here's the trick. Spiritual intimacy unlocks all the other intimacies. This right here is how God made it. So if we don't ever experience this in our marriage, then all the other intimacies that we long for, we not necessarily ever experience. So spiritual intimacy unlocks physical intimacy, sexual intimacy, relational intimacy, emotional intimacy. You have to have spiritual intimacy to achieve the most of what there's waiting for us in those areas. And so how? How do we get to this place? How do we fight with our spouse, uh, not with our spouse, but for our spouse, alongside our spouse, with, for this? Well, there's a lot of studies that they've done on marriages that have spiritual components. And so, yes, reading the Bible together. Yes, going to church together. Yes, serving together. All those things are very beneficial and can help marriages thrive better. The divorce rates of people who do those things together are less. But there's one spiritual discipline there's one uh, spiritual expression above all others that helps us get to the place where we experience more of God's presence. Any guesses? Prayer. Absolutely. Nothing unites a couple like praying together. Nothing boosts intimacy and closeness for a couple like praying together. Nothing wards off sin and selfishness and all that goes with it like prayer. It's the most powerful and potent way we can experience God's presence in our marriage. And we all know it because most of us probably don't pray with our spouses. There's all sorts of crazy stats out there that like 4%, 5% of Christians actually pray with their spouses. And so as we're talking about praying together with our spouse, we've got to get this on the table up front really fast. We're not wanting anybody to feel bad or shamed because we don't. We don't want to feel bad because we don't pray with our spouse. We want to so bad get what we're missing because we're not. Like God has something for us when we pray with our spouse. Let's go after that. So let's not feel bad for what we're not doing. Let's feel motivated for what we need to do to experience more of the garden than the ring, the boxing ring. That's what God has for us. There was a stat that came out years ago. There's been several similar studies but the Arizona-based National Association of Marriage Enhancement reported with a big study that they did that when couples prayed together on a daily basis, everyone say daily. daily. When couples prayed together on a daily basis, less than 1% of those couples ended up getting a divorce. Like you can't ignore that kind of statistic. You can't brush that off. You can't say, oh, whatever. I mean, one couple out of over 1,100 in this big old study. And they've done similar studies over the years. The stats kind of rung true. So it's true. Couples that pray together tend to stay together. Praying with your spouse can help your marriage survive. It can also help your marriage thrive. And so we have to pray, and we've got to pray in the name of Jesus. We've got to come to the one who God made access to himself available through. And so you think of something like uh, John 15, 7 where Jesus says, if you abide, which means to stay close or remain in, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. This, this is what Jesus invites us to do, not just as individuals, but as couples, 
as families, as community. If you abide in me, you remain in me, stay close to me. If you stay close to me, man, ask me. Ask me whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And of course, all that's going to be within the context of God's will. And so we need to come to Christ. No other historical figure said or could ever say that. Because no one else has gone to the cross for our sins and rose from the grave. And I even love what God does with the contrast of the gardens. Because if you go back to the Garden of Eden, and you think through the Garden of Eden, and then you go back just a couple thousand years ago to another garden, Jesus did something defining for us in the Garden of Gethsemane that's more powerful than what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. So look at the contrast. Adam and Eve disobeyed in Eden. Jesus actually obeyed in Gethsemane. You think Jesus wanted to go to the cross? But it was in that moment where he says, not my will be done, but yours. And so we have disobedience here, we have obedience here. When we look at the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve hid from God. They ran from God. They did not pursue his presence, right? You go to the Garden of Gethsemane, why was Jesus in Gethsemane? What was he doing? He was praying. He was praying. He was seeking the presence of the Father. They're running from the presence. He's seeking the presence of the Father. You look in in the Garden of Eden and you see failure. You see that they blew it. You look in Gethsemane, you see victory. Because after the garden, Jesus goes and he goes to the cross and he rises from the grave after his death and resurrection, right? And so we see this contrast. And so it's through Jesus that we need to come in the power in our prayer. This isn't like just some sort of meditation or some, this is like coming with power in the name of Christ. It's no wonder we're told in 1 John 5, verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, Jesus, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What a privilege that couples can come with confidence, trusting God's will, and and praising God, and thanking God, and asking God um, for things in prayer. And so, again, we don't want to feel bad for what we haven't done. We want to be motivated for what we still can do. Now, I know right now, for some of you, the idea of praying with your spouse is scary. It's scary for a lot of reasons. I've never prayed out loud before. I've never prayed with my spouse before. Hey, I'm mad at my spouse. Um, I feel distant from my spouse. There's a lot of reasons. We just need to go back to understanding all of you have overcome things that were hard in your life, right? How many of us would testify that things that are beneficial in our life are usually difficult and challenging, but we still go after it, right? And so in the same way, we don't back off because of prayer. Oh, prayer is challenging. It's hard. It's scary. You push through like you've done with everything else in your life. You go after it like all the other things that you wanted. You just got to want more of God's presence. And so we can't be... Um, shine away from seeking God. And when we pray, when we pray, prayer helps us hide in God rather than hide from God. And we get to be surrounded by his power, his glory, what he has for us. True confessions. This is not an area that I am personally rocking in our marriage. It's really interesting. If you go back to Genesis 3.9, let's just look at this for a second. If you go back to Genesis 3.9, before Eve was even made, God told Adam, don't eat of this tree. The rule was given to Adam, right? Then he made Eve. Then they were together. Then Eve took of the fruit, gave it to Adam who was with him. When God came knocking and he said, where are you? That word you is not plural. It's singular. Who's he talking to? Adam, the man. He's saying, dude, this is on you. 
And so let me just talk to my bros for a minute. All you men, it's our responsibility to lead this. Praise God that we have faithful spouses that will talk to God and pray and seek the Lord. But men, it's up to us to grab our wives' hands and get to this place and lead. That, that's, that's on us. We're the ones that should be saying, let's seek the presence of God because we need it. We need help. Well, you know, a lot of us go, we don't want to pray, but we need to pray. There's just times you don't want to pray. That's when we need to pray. And there's going to be times when you look at your spouse and go, I'm so mad at you. The last thing I want to do with you is pray with you. I might want to lay hands on you and pray for you. <laughs> but, and that's when we just go, but we need to pray. And so I look at my own marriage and go, man, this, this is an area that I need to grow in so much still. And so this prepping for this message, preaching this message is kicking my own rear in quite a bit. But God wants us to do this. Let's think through some of the benefits of praying for a husband, praying with our husband and wife, okay? Let's look at some of these together. Uh, it gives us access to someone much bigger than us to deal with the burdens of our hearts. And it's just things that we, we need God. And so it uh, just gives access to someone much bigger than ourselves. We experience peace and hope instead of anxiety and stress, you know, especially when it comes to bills and finances and conflict and unforeseen circumstances. We learn to love our spouse when they're unlovable, when we're seeking God, we learn to love our spouse when they're unlovable. And some of you are going, yeah. And don't forget, it means that God can give them the power to love you when you're unlovable, right? Because we need that too. Also, it helps us have more patience and wisdom and self-control with our spouse rather than yell and lose temper and blame and shame or shut down. Also, it helps us be honest before God and see our own sin and issues instead of fixating on our spouses. Praying together helps us confess sin. It helps us forgive sin instead of just harboring it. Praying together helps keep our heart pure and aligned with God's will rather than be carried off by the enticement of our flesh and the world. Uh, prayer with our spouse helps us in, uh, have this intimate sense of teeming with our spouse instead of just being isolated. Again, it unlocks all the other areas of intimacy in our relationship. And it empowers us to experience victory to overcome our fears and our worries and our insecurities and our struggles. That's what happens when we come to God together. And so praying with our spouse can transform our marriages. A lot of you do this already. I'm so grateful. But a lot of us really can grow in this area. You know, there's a couple in our church I really admire. Their names are Wayne and Gail Douglas. And they've been longtime CVCers. Uh, he's been an elder. Uh, they serve right now in marriage ministry, marriage mentorship. They've had a lot of different involvement with our church over the years. And I know that they pray together. And I just said, could you just share with me a little something that I could share with the congregation on what that looks like? Because I think a lot of us could be encouraged by that. And could you also send a picture so those who don't know you can put a, a face to your name? Well, they sent me the letter, and then this is the picture that he sends me, all right? They just want Jesus to get the glory, you know? They don't want to get any attention. But I, I twisted his arm, and he sent me a real picture. This is Wayne and Gail. They've been married 41 years. Coming up, coming up on 41 years, here's what they said about prayer and marriage. They said, in earlier years of our marriage, prayer together beyond mealtimes isn't something we did. However, over the years, prayer is something we have been more intentionally integrating into our lives. At first, we tried paying, uh, praying together in the morning, but our life and work schedules didn't often allow this on a regular basis. So we began to pray together at bedtime. 
Over the years that we've been doing this, we found many times that these were the first moments in the day that we had the chance to unwind and connect with each other on a deeper level. We had time to reflect back over our day and give thanks for the many blessings God has bestowed upon us. They helped us develop an attitude of gratitude versus just praying for God to change the difficult things we're experiencing in life. God also used this time to remind us of our need to confess any selfishness we've been harboring and to address unspoken issues we may have had with each other. Refusing to surrender our anger at the end of the day welcomes the devil to wreak havoc in our hearts and our marriage, and we did not want to let that happen. Something we regularly share with couples is how impactful prayer has become for us during times of conflict. No marriage is without difficulty and conflict, and we're no exception. We're still selfish and sinful people at times. However, in the midst of our conflict, we realize that apart from God, we are incapable of relinquishing our desire to be right or to get out of the way. It is only when we are abiding in Christ that we had a chance to work through those times. As the Bible tells us, apart from him, we can do nothing. If we chose to stop arguing, pray out loud, and ask God to intervene in the disagreement, we have found that there is no great, greater neutralizer of our frustrations and our anger than prayer, and no better place to turn for help than God. We've realized it's pretty hard to pray about the situation that caused the anger and disagreement without being reflective and prayerful about our own part in it. Since prayer helps us to listen to the Holy Spirit and to look in the mirror, it's his job to convict us and our job to pray and listen to his leading. Most recently, we've been trying to add a time of praying together to our mornings. After our individual quiet time, Both of us are now retired from full-time jobs, and although we still have very busy lives, we're doing better with both regular morning devotions and regular prayer together. Morning prayer is an opportunity to talk to God about the day ahead, to ask for His guidance, and to pray for each other. Praying together has and is transforming our marriage. Even after 41 years of marriage, we've got a couple that's saying, we still need to seek God's presence together. Uh, my challenge to you is that wherever you're at, whether it's a marriage that's down the road, you're, you're a young adult, you're thinking about marriage down the road, find someone who's going to seek God's presence with you. And if you're married today, I don't know what it looks like, and I don't know where you're at in this diagram, but this might be what you're experiencing, or maybe one of you is a little closer, or maybe you guys are doing okay. But just remember, the more you pray together, and the more of God's presence that you have together, the more intimacy the more power, the more joy that you'll experience. And you're going to experience more of a garden than an octagon or a boxing ring. You're going to have a marriage that doesn't just thrive, or just doesn't just survive, but also thrive. And that's our heart's goal. So the application for today, which will be of no surprise to you, is a prayer challenge. I'm challenging all of you to pray with your spouses for 30 days in a row. Okay, 30 days in a row. And we're going to make it really easy for you. I found this great resource. It's by Family Life. You can go to that email link or you can text oneness to 88337. And here's what they'll do. They're going to give you a daily prayer guide to pray with your spouse. There'll be a little verse. There'll be a little bit of commentary that goes with the theme of whatever you're praying about. And for those of you going like, I don't know like how to pray or where to start. They even have a little box saying, man, pray this. Woman, pray this. And so if you feel stuck, like you have something to get you going, you know? And then uh, if if that topic is of interest to you, there's even some links for like further resources on that topic. And so if you email or text, uh, sometime in the next 24 hours, you'll start to get a once a day push alert, once a day email that leads you to pray with your spouse. 
And so for all of you married couples, uh, our hope is that you'll start today. You know, you don't have to wait for this thing, right? It's like, hey, I can't pray with you. I haven't got the text yet. You know, like, <laughs> you just grab your you know, spouse's hand and say, Lord, help us to do this more, you know? But starting today, you'll, you'll spend the next 30 days daily in prayer and see what God does. We want this to become normative. We don't want you to look back and go, oh, remember two years ago when we did that cute little 30-day prayer thing, you know? Like, this is supposed to get us all to a new norm in praying with our spouses. Now, maybe you're here and neither one of you believe in God or believe in Jesus. You know, you're saying, hey, we're kind of an unbelieving couple. Hey, here's the thing. Why not try? Like, God's obviously working in your life. You're here, okay? He put you here to hear this. And so he's working in your life. So what's the harm in saying, all right, we'll pray together for the next 30 days. Sign up, do it, see what happens. Maybe you have a, a spiritual mismatch in your marriage. Maybe one of you loves the Lord, one of you's not sure whether that's spiritually. You know what? For the next 30 days, be like, why not? Pray with your spouse anyways. Maybe you can pray silently or, you know, pray out loud, but just take it on. See how God's going to show up. Again, if uh, you're single or just in a different season of life, you can take these alerts, these prayer requests that come across, and you can pray them over a couple that you love dearly or pray for your future spouse. Um, you know, modify it to fit those ways. If you're engaged or dating, you can just take these things and kind of tweak it to, to fit your relationship. And so take the next 30 days and commit to praying with your spouse. Also, uh, a very first step that some of you need to take is if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you basically need to say yes to the Lord because the Lord has asked you, would you marry me? Would you be in relationship with me? That's what the cross says. That's what the resurrection says. It's come and be with me. And so maybe you need Christ. You can take your first step of faith today by just saying, Jesus, I believe. I'm going to take that first step. Or maybe you want to take the first step and you need some help. We'd love to help you. And so whatever's going on, share your stories with us. And also you've got a response card. And on that response card, if you're going to take on the challenge, share that with us. If you fill out uh, on your response card, we're doing the 30-day prayer challenge. We'll take those cards and we'll put them in a special pile and pray over you for the next 30 days as well. So you're kind of getting double prayer, you know? And if you need Christ, let us know so that we can follow up with you and tell you how to grow in this relationship with the Lord. Because why would you settle for a boxing ring when you can have a garden? Why would you settle for fighting, you know, with your spouse when God really wants you to fight for your spouse? And so let's not just survive marriage, let's thrive, but we need God's presence. And we're going to get that best by praying together. In fact, let's do that now. I invite you all to stand with me right now. Let's just spend these last minutes or two in prayer. Would you stand and pray with me, please? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. When you created everything, you didn't just do it randomly and haphazardly and with no plan in mind. You, you created beautiful, uh, beautiful universe. And Lord, you put us in this amazing planet and all that you created, Lord, it's just, it's just astounding. And this thing, love, <laughs> this beautiful union marriage that you designed, it's amazing. And Lord, we confess uh, we have not honored it like we should. We confess that maybe we've even let the world's influence allow us to taint marriage or not see it in the way that you want us to see it. So Lord, for any of us that that applies to, help draw us back to Genesis 2.24 and what you said in the first place. God, I pray for anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with you, that maybe what they heard today was that they first need to be in relationship with you, that your power, your relationship is available just by coming to you first. So God, help them. Take that first step of faith and just saying, I believe, Jesus. 
Help me. I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I need you. God, give them the courage to let us know so we can walk with them in that. Father, I pray for those in this room, those watching online who maybe are in a difficult place right now relationally. Divorced, struggling marriage, single, longing to be married, whatever it is. Father, would you meet them in the place of need? And would you take whatever we talked about today and just give them something beautiful to walk away with today? And right now, if you're here with your spouse, I encourage you to just reach over and grab their hand. Wherever you're at, just grab their hand. And Lord, I just want to pray for those of us in this room, even online, with spouses next to us. We declare that we need more of your presence. Left to ourselves, we will ruin our marriage. And we will stunt the growth of our marriage. And we will settle for mediocrity when you have so much more planned for us. So Father, help us not to feel bad for not praying. Help motivate us to pray, to get what we've been missing in our marriages. Where we confess that we've run and we've hidden, but we're not hiding anymore. Give us a special reminder in our spirit. Give us a special desperation for you over the next 30 days that catapults us to a new place of experiencing your presence in our marriages for the sake of not just ourselves, for the sake of not just our kids, but for the world who's watching to know if Jesus and a man and a woman make a difference together. We give our marriages to you. May they glorify you. We ask in Jesus' name. And we all said together,